life doesn't happen in a specific order where, okay, first I do this and then I do that. Yeah, that is what you're supposed to be doing. But it can't always work like that. And it doesn't always work like that because life is messy. (laughs) And sometimes you figure it out in a messy way. Welcome to the Genius Women Podcast. I'm your host, Yulia Denisiu, a published travel photographer and writer, an entrepreneur, and founder of Genius Women. Four years ago, I quit my corporate job to pursue my dreams. And today, I'm on a mission to help other women pursue their creative dreams as well. This is Genius Women, a podcast where we explore living a rich, meaningful, beautiful creative life through in-depth conversations with brave women pursuing their wildest dreams. If you're ready to put your fears and doubts to the side, go after your dreams and step into your brilliance, you're in the right place. Let's go. Today's episode is all about getting the courage to lean into your gifts. Feri El Tamar is a dear friend who's inspired me from the minute we met in Jordan in 2019. She's truly a citizen of the world. Feriel was born in Algeria, grew up in London, West Africa, and New York, and worked in Canada before leaving it all behind and starting over in France. After majoring in economics and working as a data analyst, Feriel chose to pursue an alternate path in life by becoming a language coach. In this conversation, she reminds us how important it is to embrace who you are without guilt and give yourself permission to breathe when going through a big change in life. I'm so excited to welcome Feriel on our show today, and I hope you enjoy this episode. But before we jump into it, if you're new to the podcast, welcome. The Genius Women podcast is available on all major podcasting outlets, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. So make sure you subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and review. It helps us so, so much to get the word out about the show. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, please do me a favor and listen to this episode in its entirety. And promise me that at the end, if it was valuable to you, you'll go on your phone or on your computer and leave us a five-star rating and review right then and there while the excitement is fresh. Thank you so, so much. All right, let's jump into it. Well, Feriel, I am so, so, so happy uh, to have you on our podcast today. You know that you are one of my favorite humans and I'm so, so excited uh, to have this chat with you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And hello to France. (laughs) Yes. Hello to beautiful France. (laughs) So I want to start where I always start these interviews, which is, tell me, what were you uh, dreaming about as a kid? What I was dreaming about career-wise or in life? Just in general, what were in your general? Dreams? I don't know if you were dreaming about a career when you was, were a kid. <laughs> no, but maybe I was because I did want. I love history, and I did want to be a historian since I was little. So that would be it. Um, and I was dreaming about. I was dreaming in my books because I was reading all the time. So I was dreaming with my eyes wide open and uh, the words I had, you know, I was looking at. So, that would what be- were some of your favorite books? 
Um, some of my favorite, my all-time favorite is Le Petit Prince, The Little Prince. Um, that might sound like a stereotype, but it really is one of my, I mean, that's a book I would take with me on a desert island. And um, I loved reading books about history, about faraway places where incredible things happened in the past. And, you know, I uh, used to call uh, pharaohs by their first names and I thought that maybe I would meet pharaohs one day because I was so involved in Egypt for many years. <laughs> so, yeah, that's the kind of things I, I would dream about and love to do. Tell me more about you being involved in Egypt for many years. What do you mean by that? I mean by that, that I was reading about Egypt, ancient Egypt. I was dreaming of being an archaeologist. And that lasted more than just six months or a year. That was for a very long time. Um, and I still have not been to Egypt. <laughs> When this whole thing is over, it's uh, maybe the next spot on your... Probably, probably. (laughs) So tell me, you you grew up in Algeria, right? No, I did not grow up in Algeria. I was born there. Mm I was born there uh, from uh, in Algiers, in the capital city. I'm French-speaking, from a French-speaking family, because one parent was Algerian and one parent is half Algerian, half French. Um, so, but at the age of four, my father went to London to do his PhD and we followed him. So I lived in London for quite a few years when I was a little girl. And what was your childhood like? It was great. It was a multi, very multicultural because I was, I had parents from two different continents and it was very multilingual because at home we spoke mostly French and then more and more English and always mm-hmm. some Arabic mixed into that. So it's great. Um, mm. I had a set of grandparents in France, a set of grandparents in Algeria. I would go back and forth. Um, so pretty, pretty amazing. Sounds like a very global upbringing. <laughs> yeah, I was. Yeah, it started. It started. It was just uh, North Africa and 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 uh, Western Europe. Yeah, but it set me up for global life afterwards. So yes, is uh, is great. So you mentioned that you uh, you moved to London at the age four. Do you remember anything about Algiers and those early years that you could share with us? Very little. Um, it... <laughs> It was, I, I remember, I have images, you know, so I don't know if it's exactly when I was four or when I went back on vacation, because I would go back every summer on vacation for a few years. So, yeah, I remember a very sunny country. I remember eating fish that was just fished in the sea. I remember walking in in, uh, in the forest. There were a lot of forests. I remember going skiing because it snowed back then which doesn't much anymore. So it's not enough that people would go skiing, you know, like regular skiing season, mm-hmm. Christmas and February. Um, so I remember a big earthquake that destroyed a whole city. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Wow. So, Do you ever go back uh, there now? I have not been back in uh, seven or eight years, no. Mm-hmm. Um I went back very regularly for many years. And then in the 90s, there was a sort of war. Yeah, so I don't know. They don't like it when we call it a civil war. So maybe not a civil war. But yeah, it was very bad for eight, nine years. So I didn't go back. And then I started going a lot in the years 2000. 
And then, yeah, life took me elsewhere and I haven't been there in a while. Which I'm very, very um, excited to dig into where life has uh, taken you. Uh, but let's go back to the London stage. So you said that, you know, when you moved to London, you were there for quite some time. How is that like? So, you know, besides it being a very global kind of setting, um, what were your uh, years like in London? So it was really special because my parents um, didn't put me in French school. Uh, they could only afford for two children to go to French school. That was partly private. So I went to normal public school in London and very quickly turned into a little uh, London uh, girl. I Apparently I had a totally British accent. Everybody thought I was um, English, um, even in my school. Parents heard the first time parents heard me speak French was one day when my father came to pick me up at school. Everybody was really surprised that I actually spoke French. Oh wow! Um, so yeah, and I do remember that a little bit. Like people saying, "Oh, you're French," you know, and parents coming up to my father and asking where we were from. I remember little bottles of glass milk being put by the front door as it was done at the time in England. Every morning, the milkman came and let the milk in front of the door of the house. So I do remember that. So I remember learning how to read and write in English because I didn't know how to read and write in any language when I moved there. And it was overall, yeah, very nice. It, it was, yeah, it's London. It was, I remember Regent's Park. I remember the museums. I remember museums, actually. So maybe my parents took me a lot. I don't know. Um, it was lovely. It, it was a beautiful... Uh... To look at the pharaohs? In the yes, museum. exactly. <laughs> that is why I went a lot. It was to go to the British Museum, mostly, and mm -hmm. to look at their image. Yeah, so I was very little. Cause I lived there until I was nine. And yeah, lovely, lovely years. Amazing. And then from London, you went to New York. From London, I went back to Algeria for a year or two and okay. before going to West Africa because my father started working for the United Nations mm -hmm. as an economist. And we were going, we were moving to West Africa to a country called Benin. Mm -hmm. And that was in the 80s. And it was absolutely incredible and wonderful and unforgettable. How so? It's, it was very different from anything I knew. West Africa is uh, extremely soulful. Um, I, it's very difficult to explain because I don't know how it's now, but there were, it, it was a real city. It's not like I was in the middle of nowhere. It was a real city with streets and buildings and everything, but very little buildings, very small town. The capital city was small. Everybody knew each other. People were very nice. I, I guess it was just, yeah, different. It was not a big city. <laughs> so that made it more humane. And even when you're little, I think you can feel that. Mm -hmm. That's so incredible because I, I, you're my friend and I know you, I, I think, quite well. Mm -hmm. But there are, of course, parts of your story that I didn't know. And now that you're telling me about these experiences, like, for example, I had no idea that you lived in West Africa. Gosh, I can totally see how that is part of what made you into Feriel today. That's just so incredible because the, the types of experiences that you've had from Algeria to London to West Africa to New York to Montreal, wow, it's just such a breadth of different experiences. That's incredible. And it also sounds to me that this is, I'm starting to see a thread in all of these brilliant women that I'm interviewing that a lot of them had 
these kinds of unique and really uh, broad experiences early in life, which is interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to see a trend, I think. That's incredible. Okay, so you went to East, uh, West Africa, and then Africa. After, that, after that... After that, it was New York. So just a brief stop in Algeria on the way to New York for a, year, a little less than a year, and then New York. Actually, that was bad. <laughs> it's funny because I, I realized that I kept on saying it was an amazing experience. It was an amazing experience. I loved it. It was great. But the move from West Africa to New York, even if it, there was a few months in between in Algiers, was very difficult, actually. I, I kind of, looking back, we didn't call it that at the time because I was only 12 or mm -hmm. 13, but it was a depression. Mm. Um, I was not well at all. I would cry every night for months and months. I would not want to, I would sleep with my school bag from Benin because it re reminded me of memories. And yeah, it was really bad. I was completely overwhelmed by New York at first for quite a few, for quite a while. Um, Were you missing friends in Benin or like what, no, what was the thing? That was I was that... missing Benin. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was missing the country. I was missing the smells and the sights and the culture and the food and the humanity of it all. And, and I found myself in New York City, mm -hmm. <laughs> 1983 or 84, New York, I mean, 1983. Yeah, in 1983, New York. Um, Which must have been a very different New York than what it is today. It was like the most, uh, from what I saw later on st in statistics, it falls into the category when New York was the most interested in the world, which I, uh, no, which didn't show at all. I lived in Manhattan, Upper East Side. I had no idea. I mean, I saw, I knew the New York of like every subway car was tagged, you know, and um, um, you couldn't go, like there, there were very big parts of Harlem that you couldn't go to. Um, Spanish Harlem that you can go to. There was Alphabet City, which is, you know, in the East Village where you absolutely could not enter. There were mm -hmm. things like that. But, you know, um, those are the parts maybe that is, are more interesting to talk about. But the rest of, you know, a, a big part of New York City was New York as we know it now. But yeah, parts of Queens, you know, were a little dangerous. The Bronx was impossible, mm -hmm. things like that. But mm -hmm. when you lived in in Manhattan, except for a couple of spots, you wouldn't know the difference between then and now, I think. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, I was lucky to live in that part. But um, yeah, it took a little while, maybe six months for me to get over the fact that I wasn't on the African continent anymore and that I had to get used to this huge place where I had to take two buses to go to school. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I'm curious to kind of unpack a little bit more that that incredible tie that you had to Benin. I can't explain it. It's just you, maybe you have to know West Africa to to know how I don't know. It, it's intangible, you know. You can't really explain it, but it was lovely and and so maybe it's just the call of Africa. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I fell in love with it. That sounds incredible. I haven't been to West Africa yet, but it's. From what you're saying, it's, it should go. Yeah. <laughs> the experience. So tell me, so growing up, you wanted to be a historian. You were in books and you dreamt about meeting the pharaohs one day. And then you, I think, went to study economics. Um, yes. So what was that path like from, from your dreams of history to economics? I'm not sure what happened there. <laughs> I think... Um... Yeah, I think I'm from maybe a culture, even if I have extremely cool and open-minded parents, 
um, my father is still Algerian and you grow up with what your parents tell you. Mm-hmm. And when I said I wanted to do history, he was like, what are you going to do with history? You know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. he was an economist and he said, you should study something else, maybe economics. You know, that's more real. You can have a real job with it or something like that. But also, I think he convinced me because he was working for the United Nations. And I thought, mm-hmm. okay, so if I study economics, I will also work for the United Nations or for the World Bank or for some kind of org- international organization. And that's what I thought I was going to do. And then, and I think by the time I got around to going to college and going to grad school and finishing everything, there wasn't as much money being thrown around for what was called development <laughs> at the time and I think they weren't the economy had shifted and it was more capitalistic and less I don't know something happened I, I, I would have to think about it longer to be able to word it correctly not say anything stupid and throw <laughs> it out there but You're, yeah. you mean in international development international development happened? didn't exist anymore it was you know okay. it was businesses investing in countries there was a lot less money going around trying to convince i think i think the wall between east and west came tumbling down the cold war was basically over and mm-hmm. interests shifted between more countries yeah it was more commercial it was less trying to convince african countries for example to be more socialist or to be more capitalist and things like that it was more investing money in countries and so i think that whole dream that i had of going to africa or going i don't know to other countries and working there with people and making countries whatever I thought I was going to make countries as if I knew anything. Yeah, it was completely realistic and I went into something else. So you you studied economics, you finished uh, school with an economics degree. Yeah. And what did so you I had I, I did my BA, my B, my BA, my BSc, my bachelor's. Yeah, I had a BA in economics and I minored in Spanish because I was still completely into languages. And then I went, I did a master's degree in economics. Yeah. So almost more statistics than economics, really, econometrics. And uh, yeah, that led me into something completely different. Which was what? Um, I worked well when you do econometrics, you're more into data and uh, you mm-hmm. study data and how to manipulate data and how to use data for marketing. And so it was the exact opposite of what I set up for, set out mm-hmm. for. So that lasted a few years and I hated it. I hated every second of it. <laughs> I liked studying it, but I hate it because I, I like math and also. But I hated what I had to do with numbers and what I ended up working in, which was more marketing. Gosh. So it's. I, I just want to pause here a little bit because this is such a universal story in some ways where so many of us, we have some sort of dreams in our childhoods. And then we're faced with reality and often our surrounding tells us, no, you should really go for this one. And we go for it and we get there and then we end up working somewhere and we're so disillusioned with where we ended up. And it's just such a universal story. It's crazy. It is a universal story. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So you were you were in Montreal at that time, right? Yeah. So I kept a link. What links me through all this is French and English and French, learning Spanish now uh, at the time. But I ended up in a bilingual city where I could like mm. actually start a sentence in French and finish it in English and vice versa. And 
I loved it. I loved being in a bilingual city. And I think that that overrode the importance of what my job was going to be or not. I think I loved living in Canada. It was also in between cultures. It's a very North American city. There's a lot of French influence. And yeah, so I, I think it was just perfect for me to be there. It was perfect. Right. But um, you said you weren't really enjoying what you were doing. Yeah, but there were a lot of other things I was enjoying. So I was not a miserable person. For instance, I love math. I loved statistics. And that's why I did study statistics in my economics degree. So I was doing statistics. And for a while, I was happy with that. I loved working with numbers. That was fine. My unhappiness didn't last very long because I reacted pretty quickly and didn't let it, you know, take over my life. You today, I know that you're not in the econometrics field. <laughs> so tell us how did that transition happen? And was there like a moment in which you're like, you know what, this is it, even though I'm happy to be here in Canada and yeah, uh, this, but I'm like, what was there like a moment where you're like, okay, you know what, I'm, I need to change something. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I don't know how the transition happened because transitions are not radical, usually, contrary to what mm. people believe. I think it's like you work up to your transition. So at one moment, you're going to do something. Everybody's going to see the change. And it's going to say, right. oh, she did that. She left and did that. But in fact, but you were leading up to it. it for Everybody, yeah. I think, leans up to yeah. something. Even, yeah. Anybody you know who says, yeah, I just got up one day and said, you know what, I'm not going to do this anymore. And I don't think that's how it happens. Maybe consciously, that's what you think. But subconsciously, there's a lot of little things, little things that you change little by little until one day you're like, okay, this is it. This is when the mm -hmm. change, but this is when everybody else is going to see the change. Right. So for me, it was a lot of things, a bad relationship, a snowflake too many. <laughs> and really, like literally opened the window and a snowflake too many. And I think my brother was in France and got really sick. Like he had to be hospitalized. He got like viral meningitis and that freaked me out. And I thought, oh my God, yeah, I'm so far away from my loved ones. And my parents were not in North America anymore. And I thought this, yeah, I just want to be closer to my family. I want to change. I've always wanted to live in France. And yeah, this would be the good time to do it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I moved to France. I left everything and moved to France. Yeah. Wow. Was there anyone that helped you to do that or helped you through that transition? Not really. The decision was mine. My parents were the ones who helped me because mm -hmm. they supported me. They supported my decision. I was a big girl then. I was, you know, more than 30. I was 31, <laughs> I think, but I had somewhere to go mm -hmm. and they were okay. And they gave me a little bit of time to figure out what I wanted to do. My put me in contact with people. So I, I, you know, I was able to get interviewed for some, a few jobs until I found something I wanted. So that was really cool. I'd saved enough money to be able to, to do the move and to take about six months before starting to work again. So that was pretty great. Yeah, no, it's so important to have that support. Right? Yeah, I had a support. I had an apartment that was available to me. My parents were in between countries. They were living between France and Algeria. So I was able to live in their apartment when they weren't there. Yeah, so I have a very strong support system in my family. And yeah, I had a few friends that used to live in Canada also that had moved before me. So they knew all about this. They didn't think I was weird. They understood why I just decided to do this. Yeah, I think you just put a finger on something so important, right? So first, the support of your immediate uh, surrounding and your family. And then second is the support and the acknowledgement of people that you care about who say hey we get it right we get why you're doing this and we're here for it 
And if you have those two things, you're almost like you can do anything because... Yeah, I believe that. Mm. No, that's amazing. Awesome. So you came to France and you decided to start on a new path. And that path eventually led you to where you are today, which is being an incredible language coach. Tell us how that transition happened. Okay, so I'm going to make it short and sweet. So when I was in, when I first moved to Paris, I did find a job within my, you know, what was supposed to be in marketing, data analysis and stuff like that. And I, I didn't like working in a French company. It was too different culturally, too different from what I had been used to. And actually everybody was coming up to me like, oh, could you translate this for me? Oh, you speak English. Could you read over this? Could you like draft this for me? Could you check mine? And okay, so I was doing that. And um then I did um, something in France called, I don't know, an assessment of your competencies. And you mm-hmm. go through a process, which takes a few weeks, and you go through everything you've done and you pinpoint what you're good at, what you're bad at, what you did, what you haven't, what you, where you could be going. And during those, it's a series of interviews, uh, one the guy, this one guy asked me, like, why don't you ever speak about languages? And I'm like, I don't understand what you mean. He's like, well, you're going through this process because you're questioning your career and you want to change. But you never talk about one thing that you do have going for you is that you're perfectly bilingual, which is not, you know, a lot of people speak two languages, but not everybody is so bilingual. And I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, yeah, well, that's just me. You know, it's normal, whatever. And yeah, it got me thinking and and. That combined with people asking me to translate things for them all the time and help them with their English, blah, blah, blah. I thought, hey, maybe I do have something there that not everybody has. And so I started translating things. I'm not a translator, so I can't, I couldn't do more than marketing documents or little things like that. But I started with that. And then somebody reached out to me and said, would you like to start teaching? And I'm like, I'm not a teacher. I don't know. They're like, well, it's just, you know, people having lunch in English and we'll call it English lunch. And you just help people converse in English and things like that. And I started doing that and people loved it the way I was working with them. And I don't know what happened before I knew it. I was teaching English and, you know, studying to, <laughs> to do English. I, I, you know, I studied teach English as a foreign language and that's how it happened. Little by little, I sort of slipped into it. Wow. So Um, there are several things here that I want to point out that I think are super important. First of all, you went through this incredible process of learning about your competencies. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that a lot of us don't really take the time to invest into this process and I can relate to that so much because actually right now I'm going through a similar process with myself which is learning better what are some innate skills and strengths and competencies that I have and it's really a process and you have to invest time into it it's not just something that you can just sit at a table and figure out there is a method there is a process to that yeah so this in France is a normal process anybody in France who works has access to this Mm-hmm. And sometimes mm-hmm. even your, it could be that your company pays for it. It can happen. So it's, uh, it's pretty cool because I didn't know about this before I came to France. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I, I'm sure there's equivalents of that in the U- United States as well. But I think even for that, you, you need to initiate that search for something, right? You need yeah. to initiate the, the desire to learn more about yourself and about your skills. So that's incredibly important. And then the second thing that you said, which was that person that that was doing this work with you, he said, what about languages? And your 
first reaction was what about it? Because I think that something that comes so natural to us, we often tend to discount that as, well, it's just something I do so well. There must be nothing so special about it. And so I think for you, the, the fact that you combine those two and you were able to recognize that you have this gift and, and you leaned into it, that's incredibly important. And that's what helped you unfold on this path uh, that you're on today. That's yeah, amazing. I think there's just moments like that and we see them and sometimes we don't. Mm-hmm. And I think at that moment, it just seems so easy. You know, it's like things were happening. People were saying, oh, can you help me with my English? Can you teach me? Can you this? Can you that? And then I did it. And apparently I had a knack for it. People were really super happy. And after one or two years, some people, because I worked a lot with one or two companies and people started hearing about me like, oh, I want to take English, but I want to take English with Ferial. And it was Mm -hmm. just like, wow. I'm also very lucky that I live in a country where employees are entitled uh, to have 20 hours of training a year of something. They can ask for it. And the company paid. At the time, it was the company who would pay for it. So you could ask, oh, I want 20 hours of English. And if the company thought that it was useful for your job, they would pay for it. So that helps a lot, especially when you're at the right moment, at the right place. I was in a company that was just starting to get bigger. It's a French company that's becoming international. They need more and more English speakers. They need Mm -hmm. more and more of their people to speak English. And so they need more and more of my services. That's what was happening at the time. When you were starting on this path in the first, let's say, several years, did you see other women in this field and how they were doing things? Or was there any mentors or any kind of people to help you? There wasn't. It's a very difficult thing. It's the kind of thing that you that would that would have helped me at least like I think I wasted some time. But I don't mm-hmm. like to be neg- wasted is negative. So it's not in the end. I learned so much, but maybe I could have learned faster, let's say, or, you know, maybe not spend so much time, but you need, you need time to look for these programs and these things and these mentors. And you're, when you're alone and you're working and I went freelance, you're, and I, I was learning to live in this country and figure th- figuring things out. You just go and move forward. You look down and you're like, okay, <laughs> l- I'm just running forward, put my head into that into everything and just went into it completely, totally, and didn't have time to do all that. Didn't have time to promote myself, market myself, social network myself. And these are things that I would do as I went along little by little, mm-hmm. even train. Mm-hmm. At one moment I had to do a teaching, teach English as a foreign language certification. And I had to do it at the same time as I was teaching and I was teaching a lot. Mm-hmm. So you figure it out as you go along. And if you don't have to, I mean, if there's one advice is don't think you're wasting your time when you're doing these things. Like maybe people, I think you should schedule like one hour a day doing what they need to do to market themselves. When you're a freelance, you take every contract that you can because you don't know when you won't have them anymore and you just start working and working, working, working. And um, it's overwhelming. Yes, I think there's so a few things here that you said that were so uh, important. And I want to point out too, because I think you just said it so well about what mentorship and having great mentors really gets us because it's that idea of when somebody can point you out some things that they've already learned and that they can provide you the advice that's so needed at this time. It's almost like building a shortcut to where you want to go. Because otherwise, you're going to get there, but you're just going to get there 
a little bit later because you are figuring all of this on your own. I think it's also a cultural thing. I think, for mm -hmm. example, it's much easier to find a mentor in the United States than it is in France. In France, it's starting more and more now as many things like coaching is more and more readily available. But 10 years ago or 11 or 12 years ago, a lot less. I wouldn't mm -hmm. even have known where to find a mentor. I don't even know if there was a mentor for what I was trying to do. And I wasn't even sure what I was trying to do. I thought maybe I would teach for a little bit and then move on to something else. I thought maybe this was just something to patch me over until I figure out what I wanted to do. So I think things are not so clear. And I think mm -hmm. people have to be aware of that. Life doesn't happen in like in a specific order where, okay, first I do this and then I do that. Yeah, that is what you're supposed to be doing. And that's what when you go through coaching, a lot of it is about organizing yourself, getting new habits, things like that. But it can't always work like that. And it doesn't always work like that because life is messy. <laughs> and sometimes you figure it out in a messy way, which, you know, which is also wonderful because you learn so much. And yeah, yeah, figuring things out is a big part of, of the process. And sometimes you're lucky. And yeah, that mentor you needed, you just talk to someone who talks to someone who gives you a number and says, call this person. She's, she went through exactly what you're going through. She's doing the same job. You should really talk to her. And that happens too. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I, lo I love how you captured that messy process of life and <laughs> figuring things out on your own, for sure. How did you start finding your own unique voice and your approach and really uh, growing into this career and realizing that it's not just something to tie you over, but that it could be something that could really be your, your life's work. Yeah. What really helped me, so I don't know if this is good advice to tell people, but to tell ladies, is I had zero training in teaching. And I don't know. I just like went and did it. Somebody said, try those English lunches. And I found myself in an office, in a meeting room with about eight people waiting for me to help them with something. So it was an English lunch. Everybody had a sandwich and I had to figure out how to help them. Mm -hmm. And like I said, they liked my style and I didn't have any other style. I only had my style because I never learned these things. I was teaching myself English at the same time because I spoke English perfectly, mm -hmm. but I don't know anything about English grammar as none of us do because we don't study grammar. So anyway, I just went with my own style, which was the only thing I had going for me because I had nothing else. <laughs> and I had to seem confident even if I wasn't. It was a really fake it till you make it kind of thing. Seriously. I had to fake that I knew everything about the English language and that I could help anyone figure out how to speak English. And it worked. That's why I said, I guess I had a knack for it. It worked. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that made me more and more confident. And then I learned after maybe four or five years, then I, I finally had the time or the will or the energy or I don't know, there's something that made me go online and look for a program that I liked and start studying how to teach English as a foreign language. And that that helped me too, because yeah, then I was a little more structured. It was a little different. I could take on different kinds of students. I could take on beginners now because I actually learned how to teach. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so before I was working with maybe with a little more advanced people and that just made my, my client base a little bigger. I love that, Ferial, what you're saying, because it's like just dive in and start doing and definitely faking it until you're making it. I can relate to that so much in my own profession. And yeah, I think also 
the fact that you started from the base of leaning into your gifts is what also helped you to go through this period of fake it till you make it, right? Yeah. And I love it. I, I have to say something. Yeah. So yeah, that's also something I need to tell, to say is I love languages, always have. So I learned Spanish until I could speak it. And then recently I was starting to learn Chinese and I'm always trying to learn languages. I love the structure. I love the things. So when I had to learn grammar per se, really, there was no problem for me because I had learned, for example, French grammar. I had to learn French grammar because when you go to French school, you have to learn grammar. So I was in French school sometimes, not very often in my life, but a few years, and I had learned grammar. So I just applied that, you know, to the English language. And when I learned Spanish, I learned grammar. So it wasn't like, oh, I had no idea what grammar was and mm -hmm. the names of words in grammar. So I had that going for me that I love languages. Yeah. Um, and, and that's... I think actually that's key for anyone who's starting on a journey of being in a creative industry or being in, in a setting where you're your own boss or you're freelancing or, or you're trying to build something from scratch is having that love for what you're trying to do is what's going to get you through all the hard parts and through all the uncertainty and through all the unknowns of, of the path that you're trying to build. If you don't have that, it's really difficult to keep going. So I, I think that was something that was super important for your path as well. Yeah, it's passion, but you don't know at first. Like I told you, I leaned into it. I didn't realize. Mm -hmm. and then when it came to me so easily, I realized people were like, oh, you're so good at languages. It's like, no, and it's true. I'm not. I love it. It's different. I'm good at it because I love it. Right. I love it. So it's interesting. And I, I read things about it and I, I'm fascinated by it. So yeah, that's what makes me good. That's what makes me talented. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily that I was, you know, and I was also born into more than one language. I was born into almost three languages, you know. I think you discover your passion. And I think a lot of people that are going to listen to this are probably like this, not Many of us are born with an obvious gift, you know, which I would call playing the piano so well from the beginning or have a beautiful voice or be able to build things or paint things. So I guess I figured out my quote unquote gift as I went along, which was not the gift of speaking languages, but the gift of loving languages. Gosh, I love how you put it. I, I absolutely love it, Ferriel. I think it's so important. And it's like leaning into the curiosities that you have and, and those curiosities will help you unpack right that what we now call a gift or yeah. innate ability but yeah I, I just I love how you put it and it's so important because then it takes off that pressure of needing to be good right away and needing to figure like to know right away what is it, what it is that my gift is right like you said you just follow the interest and the curiosity that you have about something that you love and then you see where it takes you I love yeah. that yeah <laughs> If you can't, of course, you're not always lucky to be able to do that for a living, but do it while you're doing something else for a living. I think that would be the most important thing is when I started teaching a little bit, I still had a job a little bit. Like I was still, I hadn't given up on my previous career 100%. So, you know, if you can start working on something that you love, you have your day job or your night job, do it. It doesn't necessarily have to be super active, but start looking into it, reading things about it. Explore yourself, explore your mind, explore what you love. You might have a nice surprise. Absolutely. And, and I always say that to people as well, is that having that transitional moment where you still have a 
backup that gives you the security that you need while being able to keep leaning into what you want to do and what you love. That's like the most ideal scenario. It all happens in so many different ways. For me, for example, I had a very abrupt transition that also has its pluses and minuses because then it's okay, now now I really need to figure things out quickly. So yeah, but yeah, there's just so many different ways to do it. So I want to know how are you doing now? We're in the middle of a pandemic and it's been hard for many of us in different industries for sure, but especially for those of us who are working for ourselves, like you and I, it's been a difficult year. So what, what gives you hope right now? What are you hopeful about? So truly, I have to admit, it has not been difficult for me yet. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's amazing. Some good news. I know. <laughs> I know. I'm almost embarrassed to admit it. For me, I think things are going to be difficult, more difficult like now. But during the lockdown, I was able to continue teaching actually a lot because I did it online. So I explored that. I also teach kids. So having uh, eight kids <laughs> on a Zoom call was pretty fun. And then I studied because I had started studying to become a language coach in November. And then I did the second part of the course during the lockdown. And so the lockdown really helped me focus, uh, do it, not be able to go and do anything else and find excuses to go left and right because we were very locked down in France. And so it gave me time to start of thinking of my future, what I wanted, what I didn't want, what I wanted to change, how digital I wanted to be, how nomad I wanted to be. Yeah, so in that aspect, it hasn't been difficult. And I was still working because I had contracts going on, which I wasn't finished yet. I'm not sure I'm going to, I don't know how many new contracts I'm going to have very soon, but uh, until now, it's been quite okay in that aspect. That's amazing to hear, truly, right? Because there's so much uncertainty around us. So it's wonderful. I'm curious if you figured out some new insights. You mentioned that you spent some time thinking about how nomadic you want to be going mm -hmm. forward. And I think that's a question that a lot of us are asking right now because we all learned in this period that the limitations that we thought we had with respect to our work were perhaps not as strict as we thought they were so i think a lot of people are asking that question about being more nomadic and how can i move my work to help me be more flexible so i'm curious if you had any insights there that you could share with us or like how do you envision it for yourself yeah for me me Julia, we met traveling and traveling is means so much to me. So it was already in the back of my mind, I got to find a way to make this more nomad, more mobile. And so this forced me, as it forced a lot of people to start doing things online a lot more. So I was doing online, but just like calls, but now I had to put my camera on. And people I was working with that never wanted to do that had to do it too. They didn't have a choice. They couldn't go. The company is paying for their training. They have to train. They have to put their camera on. So the public, the customer is the one that changed the most for me because I was ready for it. But the people I was working with and for were not. And now they are. So that's a very big change there. And then, yeah, I was studying language coaching, which is language coaching is a lot of coaching. It's based on life coaching models. And I was just learning how to do it. And I had to learn online because I had to practice with people online. I didn't have a choice. I was locked down at home and I saw that I could do it. So it opened up all these possibilities that 
oh my God, maybe I do have a customer base for this now. And before I didn't, or I wasn't sure mm. I did. That's exciting. That's amazing. It's super exciting. It's super exciting because it could mean that I could work from just about anywhere. What would yeah. be the first place that you would want to go to and work from when it's when things safe are okay and again? easy to do it? Yes. I think I would go back to South America, probably Mexico or something like that would be a good base. When you're a nomad, yeah, if if you have an income, the, the, the world, I'm sorry for the sentence, it's cliche, but the world is your oyster. You can literally go anywhere. <laughs> Some countries are more difficult to go just because for time reasons, if, if my customer base is in Europe, of course, going to Japan makes it like that I have to work at night in the middle of the night. So mm -hmm. it's a little more difficult, but still a lot can be done. I love the optimism and The excitement that I'm picking up from you, from your vision of what's to come. That's, so it's that's exciting. Really cool. It's also because for me, it's sort of a new career. Language coaching is something that I found out about one day on LinkedIn on a post. And I, I read the description and I realized that a lot of what I was doing when I was teaching was coaching. So it's basically a normal coaching method where you ask questions and you engage the person in front of you and you try to make them realize different things and you support and help them. But instead of it being for life or their career, it's for learning a language. So it's very positive, very forward-looking, and it was for me helping people learn a language, which is like everything I love to do. I didn't know it existed. And it's pretty new. That's why I didn't know. But yeah, I'm super excited about it because I went through two courses about this and I started doing it and it's great. Mm. I love doing it because when you start language coaching, you can language coach any language. So say if someone wanted to learn Chinese tomorrow, I could coach them in learning Chinese. So I'm not teaching them Chinese at all. I'm coaching them. And that opens so much, so many perspectives, so many possibilities. And I have coached people using the French language. The interview happens in French. I've done it in English and I've actually done it in Spanish with someone who wants to speak French. So I can use different languages to help people learn any language in the world, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. It is. And it's knowing you, I just also think that it's, it fits you so well. And I can see how and why you would be thriving in a path like this. So that's incredible. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> If you could write a letter to Feriel right now, to Feriel when she was just starting out on this new path, what would you tell her? Relax. Oh my God. I think that would just be a relaxed, chill. <laughs> you know, don't be so hard on yourself. Don't put so much pressure. The pressure. Yeah. Don't put so much pressure on yourself, which I still do, of course, because I'm human, but a lot less. And I think I react to the pressure much earlier. Instead of waiting, instead of putting pressure on myself for three, four months, I, after three, four days, I'm like, hey, yo, what are you doing? Go breathe, go yoga, go meditate. Yeah, you have to do a newsletter every month. Okay, granted, but you don't have to do it right this moment and nothing's going to happen if you don't do it. So just breathe. You have to call this and that person. And yes, it's important that you do it. But do it in your own time or plan to do it tomorrow or maybe just start the email now. And if you're not sure it's a good email, give it a couple of hours, come back, read it, and then you send it to your customer. So it's just little things that don't let the stress build. I don't know, whatever, any way you could find that, you know, helps you work through the stress that you put on yourself when you work for yourself <laughs> is all you need. And if you can do that, you can do 
anything because there is nothing more difficult than stepping back, taking a breather and going back to what you need to do. Yes. That's what I would tell Feriel. Relax, chill. That doesn't mean procrastinate, mind you. It does not mean that. It means that, for example, before coming to this interview with you, Yulia, I did an hour of yoga. Mm -hmm. I grounded myself. I centered on myself. I breathed. That's all it means. Instead of stressing out over what am I going to tell her? Is it going to be interesting? Is anybody going to care about what I have to say? <laughs> so is it going to help anyone? Do I need to yes. say insightful things that could help anyone? Yes. No, I can relate to that so much. And I'm, I would say the same to Yulia when she was just starting out, because that's, I agree with you. This is one of the most difficult things on this path is, is stepping away and really giving yourself that permission to breathe and to do something else that doesn't involve building your path all the time, 100%, 24-7, right? Yeah. Because for us, it's if we don't do something that's related to our work, they're almost like there's no progress unless we do something. And so yeah. it's so hard to step away from that. And I so much agree with you that it's so important that we do because then we come back to it more energized with more ideas. Yeah. Don't be so hard on yourself. Chill, relax. Just don't put pressure on yourself. And mostly just, oh, I would tell if, I would tell Feriel that the more pressure you put on yourself, the less productive you are. It's just a fact. And, and that's a fact. That's not my fact. It's a fact. Nobody's productive so many hours a day. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, it's funny because I've actually come to, and, and it's been a journey for me as well, learning this. But recently, especially in the past year, I think, what I've come to know about myself is that my best hours are really just maybe one to four hours a day, max. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I'm not good. <laughs> yeah. And before I used to push myself through it. And I, I used to like really work insane hours. And actually, I still work insane hours, but I do them in a different way. Meaning that the most important work, the most creative work that I need to do, I do it in those hours. And then the rest of the time, I dedicate to tasks that are smaller, maybe going through email or, or something more that doesn't require that creative juices from me. And yeah, and, it, and it's definitely a journey, like you have to unfold into it, because in the beginning, it's all about like work hard and push yourself hard. And that's not the secret. As we know. <laughs> that's not the secret. <laughs> um, amazing. I always close our conversations with this one question. And it's a big question, but I wonder how would you start thinking about what does it mean to be a woman who is stepping into her brilliance fully today? I think for me, it means, oof, I think it means just accepting. I think it's very related to what I was saying before. Be good to yourself. Be gentle with yourself. Don't be so hard on yourself. Being a brilliant woman <laughs> or a genius woman is just being a woman that enjoys life, that doesn't feel guilty for not doing everything she thinks she's supposed to be doing, embracing who she is without guilt. I think that's very important. Yeah, I think that to me would be that. <laughs> I don't know if I'm wording it right, but I feel that women, we have so much pressure for so many things for example i don't know we have even we have to be we like to be pretty <laughs> we have to take care of ourselves we like 
to take care of our house. We like to take care of our children if we have children or our partner if we have a partner. And we have to be really, we love to be really good at our jobs. And we'd love to have time to do yoga and running and <laughs> meditate and yes. keep a journal and change the colors of our walls. And, and we don't because we can't, because it's impossible. But when we can't, very often, I think we feel guilty that we're not on, you know, on top of the world with everything. And I think we sometimes wait for maybe the outside to approve of who we are, of what we are, of what we do. And I think being a genius woman is just being ourselves. And be gentle, be gentle with yourselves. I love that, Feriel. No guilt, stepping into ourselves and being gentle with ourselves and not trying to do and be 100% all the time. No. And perfect all the time because that doesn't exist. Yeah, it's easier said than done. But God, when you start doing it, your life changes. You feel great. You feel wonderful. You're like, oh, that's cool. I'm cool. I like it. I'm happy. <laughs> and I don't care what other people think. Yeah. Yes. I love that. I think we got it. I think that's it. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for spending your time with me today. I hope you found this episode helpful. And if so, please consider subscribing to our show so you never miss another one. If you're a new listener, thank you for checking out the show. And don't forget, you can find all the resources, links, and show notes over at GeniusWomen.com. That's women with an X. So if there was something you wanted to check out, you can always, always find it over at GeniusWomen.com. That's women spelled as W-O-M-X-N. Thanks again and stay tuned for next week when I will be sharing with you the key components you need to make your dream creative life a reality.